This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, my friends. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, January the 22nd, 2023. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue now into our next step in the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 2. You know, there's an interesting contrast that we see throughout the New Testament. On the one hand, we see this loving recognition that life can be a struggle, that God understands this, and that he's patient and loving in the midst of our struggles. At the same time, though, we also see just, I mean, like an assumption throughout the New Testament that individual believers and the church as a whole will not succumb to the difficulty of life, but rather we will be people who prevail and increasingly grow in our maturity, our love, our joy, our peace, that we will be strong and vital in the midst of life as it really is. Consider, consider how we've seen Paul describe the church in Colossae in terms of what they are learning, how they are growing, and the strength of their faith in Christ. Paul says, he describes them as, as a people who have great love for God's people, that they have truly understood God's grace. Paul prays that they would have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, that they would be strengthened with all power and have endurance, patience, and joyful gratitude. We also see Paul teaching them or saying that they have been taught the word of God in its fullness and that in Christ they have the full riches of complete understanding, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then finally, Paul says, and this is in chapter 2 now, he says, I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm is your faith in Christ. In the midst of very challenging circumstances and their lives, I mean, you go study the history of what it would have been like to live, to grow up, and to, to be Christians in the midst of the first century Lycus Valley of, of ancient Asia Minor. Anyway, when you see that, in the midst of that, we see here a church that is healthy, maturing, full of love, of goodness, and vitality. And as a result of that, it is almost striking that at the same breath, within the same breath, Paul says, so don't be deceived. Colossians 2, 4. Our primary two verses today are Colossians 2, verses 4 and 8. We went through um, Colossians 1 through 7 last week. And if you missed that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it because it set the stage for what we're delving into today. But in verse 4, Paul says, I tell you this, I've told you these things so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Now, we would expect Paul to say something like this to the church in Corinth, for example. If you go read First and Second Corinthians, you will see there a church that decidedly was not healthy. But for Paul to say this to the Colossian church tells us that no matter how healthy or mature we may think we might be, Part of spiritual maturity is recognizing that apart from God's grace and a humble, trusting dependence upon Christ, my friends, we are all vulnerable to deception. Now, let's press into this just a bit. I'm sure you know that within the full spectrum of Christianity, especially when you look back through Christian history, there is a lot of disagreement, right? A lot of disagreement about biblical issues, 
but also lots of disagreement around issues that actually have very little to do with scripture at all. That's something that happens all the time, right? You can go onto, you could see this online and social media among churches and different denominations stuff today. It happens all the time. It's where one group, right, one Christian group will look at the understanding of another group and say, they are deceived. They are wrong. And so often this leads to mistrust, animosity, and further splintering within the church. And in past centuries, it has at times even led to violence and death. But my point with that is that when we hear Paul's warning to not be deceived, we need to consider that the core issue at hand, at least here within the Colossian church, it is much simpler, much more basic and profound than the many debates that so often divide the church today. You see, if you get to the root of it, this root of deception that Paul describes as a fine-sounding argument. Friends, it is a devaluing of the work of Jesus Christ. It's the idea of Christ plus. Yes, we believe in Jesus, who he is, that we're forgiven, and hey, we're going to go to heaven when we die. But that's not enough. This is the idea that there is more that you must do to be in right standing with God and to be complete. Right? There are certain things that you must believe and understand to have fullness in your life. And this is the root of deception that leads to legalism, judgmentalism, and division. And it's also the deception that has robbed so many Christians of the freedom, the fullness, and life-giving joy of their new life in Christ. And so reflecting on this, Paul says, don't be deceived. And then in verse 8, Paul amplifies his warning. See, not only are we warned against deception, but also against the ultimate consequence of deception. As Paul says, don't be taken captive. Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul says, see to it, right? That's a key thought there, see to it, right? This is intentional. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, there is a lot there. First of all, friends, this is subtle, but there's this important progression here in terms of these two concepts, a progression from deception to captivity. You know, it's tempting at times to have this cavalier attitude towards deception and honestly towards being the one who is doing the deceiving. You know, we may say, it's okay for me to lie a little here, you know, just to be a little bit dishonest, use a little deception because it's going to help me and it won't hurt anyone else. Friends, we all do this and we all are wrong. You know, lies rarely stay little. You know this. And even the smallest deception is corrosive to our hearts because by definition, it means we are turning from our trust in God to trust in ourselves. Likewise, when we tell ourselves that it's okay to lie, we are devaluing the person whom we deceive. And this never ends well, and it can lead to bondage. On the other hand, we allow ourselves to be deceived. Again, thinking it's no big deal. I mean, maybe there's a situation or a way of thinking that we know is unhealthy for us, but we say, you know, it's, it's just a little bit is okay. But friends, unhealthy thinking 
leads to an unhealthy mindset, which can lead to unhealthy actions, which easily leads to bondage. Again, this is no shocking revelation for me. We all know this. You know, in my first track's um, email, devotional email that I send out maybe a couple of times a month, this week I told the story of when I was a teenager on a family trip to Paris. And my parents very unadvisedly allowed me one day, one afternoon, for a few hours to explore the area around the Champs-Élysées myself. And so I'm in this park, I'm having some lunch, sitting on the bench, and this guy, this adult man, I'm 17, but this man comes up, sits down to me and strikes up a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he's invited me um, to join him that night, like at 10 o'clock that night, for a private tour of Paris on my own. And it'd probably be best if my parents didn't know about it because they wouldn't want me to go. And I met, I was like, in, like, this is awesome. And I'm ready to hit the town. But praise God, I told my parents what I was going to do. And they prevented me from going. I was deceived by that man. But it was by my by parents, by God's grace, that prevented me from being taken captive. You know, the phrase take captive here is very interesting. The Greek word Paul uses is rarely seen. And to explain why this matters, I need to take a step back. And here we're going deep into the text. This is an example why sometimes it's, it's so worthwhile to, to have some study notes, maybe even a commentary, to really get down underneath the text into the context to have a fuller picture of what's going on, or I should say a more full picture of what's going on. In any case, as we've discussed, Paul knows there are false teachers trying to undermine these believers' faith in Christ. Scholars call this the Colossian heresy, and while we have a general sense of it, we don't know precisely what this heresy was. We have clues, and the clues all point to this idea of Christ plus, that just Jesus isn't enough. Now, one widely held theory is that this false teaching was some blend of pagan and Jewish mysticism. This pulled back into the legalistic and performance-based thinking of the Jewish laws, traditions, maybe circumcision, combined with this allure of special knowledge and elitist mystical thinking that was common in the ancient pagan religions, maybe even some very early form of Gnosticism, although that's less likely. And one leading scholar, and this is a little more of a minority opinion, but he makes the case that the Colossian heresy was actually just Judaism itself, that these teachers were saying to these followers of Christ that you also had to fully conform to the Mosaic law. And this would have been parallel to the dynamic that we saw back in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, if you were tracking with us when we went through the book of Acts. But in any case, back to the text. The verb Paul uses here, with that in mind, the verb Paul uses for take captive in the Greek is very similar in how, it, in its, how it's spelled and, and its sound to the Greek word for synagogue. And so it's possible, a hypothesis, that Paul here is using a very targeted pun, right? See that place of worship with all of its laws, its traditions, its restrictions, and its religious philosophy? That will take you captive, and it will rob you of the fullness and freedom that you have received in Christ. You know, from that perspective, several of Paul's other statements come to mind. Romans 7, 5, and 6 in the surrounding context. Um, but, but here in Romans 7, 5, and 6, Paul says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law 
were at work within us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so it's very possible, if not probable, that these false teachers were deceiving the Colossians, telling them that once they had become believers by God's grace, they now needed to turn back to the old way of the written code, of the law and religious rules. In Galatians 3, Paul speaks to this emphatically. At the top of the chapter, we hear him say, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And Paul says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh, right, or of your own efforts? And so Paul warns the Colossians that this false teaching was hollow and deceptive philosophy, right? Human reasoning dressed up in the garments of religious pride. Now, the warning goes a step further. As we're told, this deceptive philosophy depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with traditions. Traditions can be a great blessing as long as they don't become more important or as long as they don't distort the underlying truth they claim to express. And of course, within the church, we could talk about that a lot. But what did Paul mean by the elemental spiritual forces of this world? Again, that's the New International Version. And other translations render this the elementary or basic principles of this world. The Greek here is a little difficult to translate, but if you zoom out just a bit, we hear Paul warning us against the basic, right, almost to our DNA, this basic tendency, you could also say tradition, of the human condition for us to create powers and authorities to which we then give our allegiance and to which we look for our identity and our source of life. Friends, these basic principles could be things like governments, and of course governments are necessary, but they can also become idols. Politics, right? The whole process that we've all been going through underneath our government, right? Basic principles, things that can take us captive. Maybe it's social trends, status, religions. The NIV sees a spiritual element here as well, even if it is a man-created spirituality. Thinking back again into Acts, right? If you may remember when we went to the city of Ephesus, if you were living in Ephesus in the first century, your city was dominated by the worship of Artemis. Now, of course, Artemis was a human-created deity with zero divine power. But the worship of Artemis held great power over the people of Ephesus, as Paul discovered as he shared the gospel there. You see, in essence, Paul is saying, there are so many things in this world to which we give our allegiance, in which we invest our identity, and from which we seek meaning and purpose. And even if they are morally neutral, or in some ways even if they are good, if we look to them for our life, if they become our first place passion, they will take us captive. For you have been brought into fullness of Christ, so don't be taken captive by these lesser gods. And by God's there, I'm using a lowercase g. 
You see, my friends, if we take the time to consider what this may look like in our own lives, it will get really practical really quick. And then my friends, of all of the traditions, basic principles, and elemental forces that make us vulnerable to deception, the greatest of these is the ever-present danger of pride. How did Paul describe the deceiving arguments of these false teachers? Right? He said they were fine-sounding. Right? They sounded good. These were deceptions that stroke our sense of self-importance, that say what we want to hear and hold the powerful temptation of elevating ourselves above others. Right? If my fullness in life, my rightness with God depends on my ability and my knowledge, then it's a very short step to concluding that my spirituality and my knowledge is better than yours. And by elevating myself, I am devaluing you. And of course, the tragic flip side of this is that when we believe this same prideful lie, but rather than saying, yay me, we rather conclude that we are failures, that we will never measure up, and we devalue ourselves Of course, this leads to despair, disillusionment, even depression, and we miss the liberating gospel truth that while we will never measure up on our own, we don't have to. We rather can humbly accept the amazing and redemptive grace of God and begin the journey of transformation that flows from acceptance and love, not performance and condemnation. So I'm going to draw for just a moment as we discuss pride. I'm going to draw for just a moment from a book that's written by a good friend of mine. He's part of our church here, and his name is Dr. Steve Willing. Some of you out there know Steve, and this book is excellent. And I have information about it on the website with this message notes. And actually, if you have my note sheet, it's down at the bottom of the note sheet. But Steve points out, points out that of all of the vices, sins, and self-destruct mechanisms endemic to the human condition, the greatest, and that which Scripture warns against perhaps more than any other, is pride. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, greed, drunkenness, and all that, these are all mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, the essential vice, the utmost evil. Wow. The theologian, um, theologian John Stott puts it this way. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. So, how does pride lead to deception? Friends, it does because pride is the root of self-deception. There's so many ways to explore this, but most simply put, our pride tells us that we are smarter than everyone else, and therefore we don't need to listen. We don't need to learn. Why do I need to consider what you have to say? Because I'm right. You see, we aren't deceived because we get things wrong. I mean, we get things wrong all the time. The problem is when we are wrong, but are absolutely convinced that we are right. You've probably heard the old quote that's often attributed, or I should say misattributed, to Mark Twain. 
And it's this, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Scripturally, when we go to the Proverbs, and the Proverbs has so much to say about this. Proverbs 26, 12, we are told, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. And thousands of years after the Proverbs were written, recent social science has demonstrated that as people, we simply think we are smarter than we actually are. One study that Steve cites in his book found that 96% of the study participants thought they were smarter than the average person, right? Only 4% considered that they might not be smarter than another, than another given person. In short, most of us think that we are smarter than most of us. You know, Steve goes on to describe this rare medical condition. It's an example. This rare medical condition that is a powerful metaphor of pride's debilitating effect. And it's called Anton's syndrome. And it results in blindness. But for some reason, the person who is blinded doesn't know they are blind. And you can imagine the disaster that unfolds from that. On a wider scale, this is the observed condition of a lack of awareness or denial of one's own disability. And Steve points out that people who lose their vision, they can adapt in many ways, as long as they know they are blind. Much worse is when a person is blind but doesn't know it. Even worse is when a person is blind but thinks they see better than those actually who are able to see. My friends, this is pride. And it blinds us to the truths, the lessons, and the corrections that we need. And it makes us sitting ducks for deception and bondage. By the way, I'll add, if you hear that and think, Brother, amen, everyone around me is blind, and I'm the one who really sees. My friend, odds are you are the one whose eyes need to be opened. And friends, this, this is all of us. I mean, Steve puts it this way. Pride is a false belief about oneself. The, 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 right, the conviction that we always know better, and this leads to overconfidence in many, many different ways. And then that's, this is his quote. An unshakable confidence in one's own position is an invincible barrier against correction. That's so well said. And friends, when our prideful minds are closed to correction, we are easy prey for deception. And when deception joins forces with our pride, it leads to captivity. But that's the bad news. The good news is that when we admit our own fallibility, we've taken the first giant step away from the bondage of pride and into the great freedom of humility. For it's both scripture and cutting edge social science agree that our greatest defense against deception and the antidote to pride is humility. You see, humility makes it possible for us to receive correction and discipline. Humility opens our hearts and our minds to hear wisdom from God and from others. Humility opens our ears to listen, to think, to consider, and for our minds to be renewed. There's so much more that could be said here. But for it's just considered these two scriptures, and these are just two of many that speak to the great gift of humility. In Psalm 25, verse 9, God says to us, 
He, or the prophet says regarding God, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And to paraphrase that, it is humility that allows us, that opens our hearts and minds to see and accept that God is right and to learn his ways, which bring freedom. In 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, I'm almost certain that you've heard this passage. Peter says, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Just one last thought on humility, and it's that humility isn't just the absence of pride. It is a positive and active posture of our heart and mind. And as true followers of Christ, we must realize that true and healthy humility is a gift of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we see the famous fruit of the Spirit passage. We are told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the word there for gentleness can also be translated humility. And friends, humility is a gift of God because as we saw throughout the Advent season here at Trinity, really looking at the famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, humility is the very nature of God. Just one last thought. Friends, as we consider Paul's warning against deception and captivity, we can't forget that there is a deceiver. We have an enemy And our enemy, the deceiver's greatest weapon, is, well, deception. Jesus speaks in John 8, 44, when he said, You belong to your father. He's he's challenging the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right, the, the religious elite. And he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. For and here Jesus describes Satan. He says, For he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, and there's a really interesting context around this to fully appreciate what Paul is saying, but he's talking about Satan not outwitting us. He says, we are doing these things so that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And my friends, Satan's greatest scheme is deception. And his greatest weapon to accomplish that scheme is pride. And Paul will devote much of the rest of Colossians to what this actually looks like. So, as we see to it that no one takes us captive, we have the great gift of Scripture, which we must engage with great humility. We have the gift of the Spirit, our union with Christ, who will lead us to be humble. And my friends, we have the spiritual gift of humility itself, by which our hearts and our minds will be opened to listen, to hear, to think, to learn, and to be corrected by our God, whose correction and discipline is always an expression of his love. Now, friends, thank you so much for joining with me today. I pray that you have a wonderful week, and I'll be back here with you next Sunday.